You're listening to Smart Businesses Do This, and today I have none other than Jordan Harbinger. In today's episode, he shares the psychology hacks he uses to be a better business owner and how it can help you become a better CEO. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. You are listening to Smart Businesses Do This, the podcast show for freelancers, side hustlers, and upcoming small business owners who want to transform their current business or business idea into a company that is built to succeed, simple to run, and gives you the freedom to live your life on your own terms. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. Today, we have none other than Jordan Harbinger himself coming down to talk to us to be a better business owner and that can help you become a better business owner and CEO. Jordan, thanks for so much for coming here. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. And you know, it's funny. I've known you for a really long time and you're the first person to say Harbinger instead of Harbinger. And then someone in my camp was like, oh, he pronounced your name wrong. And then I was like, you know what though? It's not really wrong. It's just a different kind of G. And I really can't argue with it because my last name is a word. So now when people go, is it Harbinger or Harbinger? I always think of that time back in New York where you said it quote unquote wrong. And I'm like, it's both. (laughs) But that's cool because you've got like a built-in pseudonym now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can so much easier to sneak around. You just change the way it's pronounced. Somebody will be like, oh, there's that guy, Jordan Harbinger. And I'll be like, sorry, wrong guy. I'm Jordan Harbinger. Yeah. So I get this a lot as well, being a European, because of course my name is Adam Lyons. But I get a lot of people be like Adam Lyons. I get that a lot from especially French people. Yeah, that sounds very, very fancy. Yeah, exactly. So it just depends on which restaurant I go to. If I'm like hanging out in like a bit of a slum, it's like, yeah, Adam Lyons. And if I go to like a fancy restaurant, it's like, oh, Adam Lyons reservation for two, please. So anyway, so one of my favorite facts about you, I got a whole bunch of facts. I don't know how personal we're going to get because for everyone listening, me and Jordan have been friends for years. And so I know Jordan very well. But some of my favorite stories are about the absolute crazy situations you found yourself in, man. Yeah, there's been plenty. And now that I'm a little older, I'm pushing 40. I'm 39 right now. I look at stuff I got up to in my 20s, and I'm sure you do this as well. And I go, wow, I would never do that again. I almost died. And I think a lot of people are like, yeah, wild times. And I'm like, no, no, no. Literally, I almost died a lot of times. (laughs) I'm so happy you went there because I didn't know how far we could get into that. So Obviously, the reason we brought you here is because we want to get some ways that you can alter the way that you think. I, I got this great phrase, which is, you don't know what you don't know. When you like meditate on that, it's kind of scary to think that if no one comes along and tells you something, you don't even know where to look for the thing that you need that's going to completely change your life, you know? No, you're right. It's called unconscious incompetence, right? Yep. You don't know what you don't know. And it's exactly. this sort of tree or ladder And then after that is conscious incompetence, where you do know what you don't know, usually in a specific area, of course, or level of expertise. And then it's, you don't know what you do. Then it's it's conscious competence. Yeah. And it goes all all the way up the ladder until you're very conscious of what you do and do not know. Yep. And then it actually finishes with unconscious competence, where you don't even have to think about it and you're naturally good. But that also means that because you're not thinking about it, it starts a new level of unconscious That's right. Okay, it's all coming back to me now. Yes, that's right. It's a cycle. Because yes, once you're doing something like proper mic technique, like right now, I've been broadcasting for over 12 years. So when I'm talking into a studio microphone on a radio station or the one at the studio I have in my house, what I do is I'm always on this microphone. And if I'm in this room and I'm on the phone using a headset, if I don't, pay attention, 
I start talking into the microphone and then I realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm on my AirPods. <laughs> I'm on the phone. I'm not, I'm not broadcasting. So then I can sort of step out of here. But if I don't see the microphone, of course, I don't, I don't just gravitate towards it. But you start to realize, oh, yeah, I'm not broadcasting, but I'm doing proper mic technique, not thinking about it. And so you start to see then, oh, well, since I'm not thinking about it, there's other things that I'm doing with my body that I'm not paying attention to. And when I take voice lessons, for example, my teacher will go, are you standing up straight or are you sitting? And I'll go, how do you know that I'm sitting? And she goes, I can hear it in your voice. And I'm just mind blown <laughs> by the fact that she can tell by the way that I talk. And so that is an interesting cycle. I forgot what that's called. Do you know, does that have a name? I've never known the name. I know the system, a bunch of my psychology teachers taught me it, but I don't know the official name for it. No, I'm sure it does. I'm sure someone's named it. It's actually called the four stages of competence. Yeah, of course it is. On the other hand, it's also called the conscious competence learning model, which I feel like sounds more complex, therefore making it okay that we didn't know what it was called. Yeah, I think that's fine. Let's go with that one. Let's go with that one. Yes, okay. the conscious competence learning model. Unconscious incompetence, the individual does not understand or know how to do something and doesn't necessarily recognize the deficit in their knowledge. Conscious incompetence, you essentially recognize the deficit and so you know that you do not know. Conscious competence, the individual understands or knows how to do something, however the skill or knowledge requires concentration. And then unconscious competence, the individual has had so much practice with a skill that it has become second nature and can be performed easily. Right. And the individual may also be able to teach it to others depending on how and when it was learned. That model I absolutely love. And just to bring it back to the unconscious incompetence when you don't know that something's wrong, I found one of the fastest ways to level up is to use a psych hack, to go into your own psychology and take a simple win from somebody else and apply it. And suddenly you find the things that you didn't think before, you're now thinking, you're asking the right questions, you're in the right place, and you start getting success that seems almost unobtainable before because you just didn't have that one piece of the puzzle. So I'll give you an example. So at this point in time, I spend most of my time coaching high-end executive CEOs, helping them improve and grow their business. I'm, I'm doing this for about 15 different companies, all earning seven figures or more, right? And whenever I work with them, they will give me a problem that they don't know how to solve. And not only do they not know how to solve, they, because the information is missing, they're unconsciously incompetent. They don't even know where to go to look for the solution. And so they're trapped in this cycle where they cannot get out of it until they're given a piece of information that enables them to find the solution to that issue. And so actually it happened in my own business for a while. I was stuck trying to get growing my audience, right? So I was trying to grow specifically a Facebook audience in a, in a very small niche. And it was growing, but it wasn't growing at a good rate. And then someone said to me, have you ever considered having a minimum metric of growth? And it was just something I'd never considered before. I was always just pushing for growth, but I'd never considered a minimal accepted amount of growth. And so the person said, why don't you just try to add a thousand new followers every single month, no matter what the cost, even if you spend more than the market average, why not gain a thousand followers a month and use that metric to improve from. And so instead of just gaining like a couple of hundred followers a month, I focused on getting a thousand followers a month. And then my growth was great, but I was overspending for it. I was like spending money on ads. And, and then all I had to do was refine my process until gaining a thousand followers a month was really easy. This is like dollar cost averaging in a way in investing. You ever heard of that term? I have. Yeah, 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 I have. But you should explain it anyway for the listeners in case they don't I will, know. yeah. So essentially what this is, is 
people go, oh man, I should have bought Amazon last year. I thought about it. Now it's really high. And then a year from now they go, oh man, I thought about buying it the year before and last year. Now it's even more high. I'm so stupid. So what dollar cost averaging is, and this is great for crypto too, because it's always going up and down and up and down. And people are always trying to like time Bitcoin's low. Oh crap. It went even lower. Oh my God. It's 10 grand now. Like all this dumb ridiculousness, right? Dollar cost averaging is every let's say time interval, let's say for crypto, it could be a week or a day. And then for regular investments, it might be every month. For me, it's every month or so. What I do is I will buy index funds or whatever mutual funds every single month. And therefore, since I'm buying every single month, whether the market's low or whether the market is high, what happens over a period of time, over years, is my dollar cost average is an average price between all those ridiculous highs and all of those super low lows. And so you end up buying by definition in the middle because it's the average. And so you go, oh, okay, I did pretty well. Because when you try and time things, you end up maybe trying to beat the market like, oh, I bought and it was low every time. And then you go, oh, wait, I actually only bought when I thought it was going to be low, but it ended up being high. You end up paying more trying to beat the market or the same amount that you would if you just said, Every third Tuesday of the month, as long as it's raining, I'm going to purchase some stock. If you do that, you will end up in the same place or better as something like 51 or 60% of the market. It just doesn't matter. And that's because you're taking what is essentially a random occurrence, according to most of us, because we can't predict market behavior. In fact, nobody really can. We're just saying, all right, it's like playing roulette and going, I'm going to pick a random number and I'm going to play every minute and it's going to be a different number every single time. You're going to win sometimes. Now, the odds in roulette are stacked against you, but if the odds were about 50-50, you would still end up right on the average. And that's the way that you guarantee that you end up on that average. And so dollar cost averaging stops you from wasting money and stressing out about when you buy. And so that sounds kind of like what you're saying with purchasing these specific followers. You're going, look, it might be expensive, but I'm going to get them anyway, just so I get this one metric in place, which is getting the growth. And then you optimize for the cost of each because you've already figured out how to make it grow. Dude, exactly. And this is what I love. So what you just gave is exactly that. It's a psychology hack specifically for anyone who's maybe scared of investing, but might want to put their toe in the water. And I'll double down on it. And I'll tell you one of the best investing tips I ever got from Warren Buffett, which was amazing lesson. And it's buy what you know. So if you don't know what stock to buy, just buy the companies that you know. And that way, if you like the brand and you're buying the product, you're a supporter of it. And chances are, if you like it, it's probably going to keep growing. So if you know it and you like it, buy it. That makes sense. The reason, and here's the thing, people go, Warren Buffett, he can beat the market. You know, what the heck? I don't understand what Jordan's talking about. Yes. Okay. So what Warren Buffett has done is he's gone, hmm all right, I want to beat the market and I want to beat it in investments of companies. So Warren Buffett isn't like necessarily just going, hey, I see this APM stock getting really good. He's going, I've read 187 books the last quarter about artificial intelligence on the blockchain and talked with every expert in every company in that niche. And so what I'm going to do is buy this company that makes video cards because every AI computer that they want and that they build uses NVIDIA chipset. And so then since they're all going up in value and funding and they're getting interest, they're going to need more of these chips. So he'll buy that company. 
And then people will go, whoa, how did you know that that was going to happen? And the answer is he's 99.99% in the 99.99 percentile. So he's like 20,000% more educated than other people, even laymen in that field or like bottom rung in that field. He knows more about that market than pretty much any single other person in the world because he's gotten decent educations from like the top level executives or experts in the field from like different angles, right? So he doesn't just talk to the president and CEO of HP, Hewlett Packard. He talks to, let's say, every single person in the printer business that understands the macro of that market and then goes, based on what I know now, they're going to need a hell of a lot more toner stuff. So I'm going to buy the company that manufactures toner. Yeah, exactly. Because he's buying what he knows. And that, that's exactly it. And this concept of unconscious incompetence, he bypasses it continually by going into and reading about things he doesn't know, which opens up all these crazy possibilities. I had one recently that it was crazy. I decided I don't know anything about running conventions. I know a lot about events, but not about conventions. I don't know if you follow trends, but right now there's actually a lot of money in conventions. It's a, a lot of people were running events for a while. But conventions are like a higher profit event, right? So I realized I knew nothing about conventions and a lot about events. So I wanted to level myself up. So the way I did it was I announced a convention. I was like, I'm going to run a convention in one of my niches. And I had no experience, no knowledge, didn't know what I was doing, got a vendor to donate the room. So I didn't have any cost for the room itself. And I ran a convention. And I didn't know if it would be a success or a failure. And now, Jordan, between you and me, depending on how you measure this event, it was either a success or a failure. So if you look at net earnings, I probably lost two and a half thousand dollars. So there was an amount of loss there. However, during the event, when I realized that we weren't going to net positive, I brought in a film crew and I had the film crew interview all of the public speakers that came to the event. In return, we generated 66 private videos from that event. On average, in this particular niche, we produce 150 videos a year. So we did 66 in four days instead. Wow. So when you talk about like lost, sure, I lost two and a half grand, but I also got six months of video production done during that time, which saved me hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then... Because I ran this event and we made it look like a success, even if it wasn't, right? We took videos of the talks. We had like, I don't know, about 50 attendees and we'd crowd them into every shot. So so it looked busy. The largest competitive event in Texas convention reached out to us and said they were having difficulties between their partners. They had a personal issue and one of the partners wanted to sell his ownership in this huge convention that's the biggest in Texas in the same niche. And so they reached out to us and said, would we buy it off them? So we ended up in negotiation with the partner that was staying on board, who was a minor partner who only owned 33% of the business. We bought out the major partner who took a discount because he just wanted to get out because he was tired of arguments with his partner. And now coming up in this August, we're going to be running the largest convention in Texas of this specific niche with an expert who's run it for the last 10 years. It sounds like a win. It's just always nice to, there's a logical fallacy that I like to apply very selectively when I look at things that otherwise have gone wrong, right? It's called shooting the barn or the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And what this is- is, I love this, by the way. The fact it's Texas is killing me. Yes, it is. It's it's really called the Texas sharpshooter. And when you're going for a PhD or you're writing some sort of scientific journal paper, 
they don't like it when you do this, but it applies really well to life. And so what this is, is you look at the data that you got from your experiment in science, right? Crap, this shows a different conclusion than the one I wanted. But if I look at the data from these very specific subset, and I sort of draw as compartmentalize that, then it gives me the conclusion that I want. And so the reason that scientists hate it is because imagine you're looking to say, look, smoking doesn't cause cancer. So you shoot all these holes in the side of the barn, right? That's the Texas sharpshooter thing. And then you draw a circle around the ones that you want to say that was the target, right? Everything else that fell out, you just <laughs> ignore it. You draw the target where the most, the most holes are in the side of the barn. That's bad because then you go, oh, well, if I ignore all the people that had other health issues, like this person was hospitalized for the flu 10 years prior. So maybe that wasn't the smoking that killed him. Maybe it was that flu, right? You get yeah. rid of that and then you just go, oh, well, in that case, everybody else was just killed by random other diseases and smoking. We can't really attribute to, the, to being the cause of death. And that's what bad scientists that are biased will do. And so that's why the Texas sharpshooter fallacy is bad. However, in life, it's great because you go, well, I lost a bunch of money on this convention, but it would have cost me three, four times as much to get this many videos produced and it would have taken a lot longer. So I'm coming out on top. And it's like, okay, well, that wasn't what you set out to do, but <laughs> the byproduct was just fine. And so in that way, I'm sort of happy saying, look, it's a little bit of a logical fallacy because we didn't achieve, we didn't hit the target that we wanted, but we can draw a different target that's equally or greater in value. And I think we're just, we're just fine with this. I love that. And actually, so I, I want to address it because I think that's really powerful because I do that with every project on purpose. But I go in with the goal being to remove unconscious incompetence. Because I ask myself, what is the financial value of removing a block that I don't know exists? So by knowing I don't know anything about running conventions and daring to run one, I calculate that the cost of removing that block is two and a half grand. And that's how I go about removing my unconscious incompetence. But I always try and stack it thinking, what else can I win as part of this process? Yeah, that makes sense. I like the idea of hacking anything, but I also like the idea of kind of being sneaky about it. Because here's the thing that we didn't talk about in this particular example. There's something to be said for tricking yourself into becoming a little bit more happy as long as you're not deluding yourself in a way that's going <laughs> to harm you down the line. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. That's right. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I know I'm a little bit on a tangent here, but I think the real value that people can take away from some of this, not necessarily the only value, but definitely part of the real value is, hey, look, sometimes you're going to find that you didn't get what you wanted. And sometimes that's going to be even better, but it's only going to be that way if you stop crying about what you got. I know this because I'm so guilty of being like, oh man, I didn't even get to do this. Or like, oh man, this person got that interview guest for the Jordan Harbinger show before me. And then it's like, yeah. And now you get to listen to that interview and you did, you have eight hours less prep to do because you can piggyback off what they did. And you found that this thing that you're going to focus on turned out to be a really boring story so you can avoid it. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm still, I already decided I was going to be upset about this. So I'm just going to keep being upset about it. There's this one company I'm working in right now and they're doing, they're like 10 million a year is where they're at. And actually, uh, you and I both know the company, but I'm, I can't mention it because uh, I've got an NDA. But this one particular company, they have a lot of dysfunction and there's a lot of stress and drama. And every meeting I turn up and I'll make like funny jokes and I'll laugh and do my job, but I uplift everyone. And I've had a lot of people be like, are you always this optimistic? Are you always this happy? And I'm like, I'm genuinely happy. Like this is a company that's had dysfunction in the past and we're like getting to fix it. And I like making you guys laugh. Like we're winning. Plus, you know, revenue's up and we've got all these great leads in. 
But at the same time, I turn my phone off every weekend and refuse to look at it, like absolutely switch it off. And they commented on Monday morning, I, I, I go into this meeting. They're like, hey, you haven't responded to this message for the last two days. And I was like, yeah, it was sent Friday after work. So I'm not touching it until Monday. And they're like, what if we really needed you? I was like, well, if you really needed me, you would have texted me. You didn't text me. And I, I literally will not check any work emails until basically until you're paying me until I'm back on time. And the whole company culture has been one of you can reach them 24 seven, which is attributing to all their burnout. They're all like tired and stressed. And so because I started leading by example, some of the other employees are starting to respect my time. And now they're respecting each other's. And now the whole company is on a really nice like 10am to 6pm work time five days a week. And the impact is money's gone up, revenue's gone up, happiness has gone up, everyone's more optimistic. And it's that same kind of thing. I didn't set out to do that. I set out to make sure they respected my boundaries because I've got other things to do. But by having an optimistic, happy attitude and making them respect my boundaries, it's got this net result of everyone being happier, more optimistic and having the side effect. Not what I set out to do, right? Drawing the circle around the target that I hit, but it's what ended up coming out of it. There's an interesting principle here that you went in and you basically said, I'm going to help you guys, but here's this one thing where I'm an unmovable rock because I'm optimizing for my own happiness. And they're just like, how dare you, right? And they go, well, crap, if he's not going to work on weekends, there's no point in us doing it because we can't get anything done. We can't reach him. And he's the bottleneck on this particular project. And then they get back on Monday and they're like, hey, so that whole thing about networking on the weekend, amazing, right? <laughs> and you're going, oh yeah, that's funny because since I basically made it impossible for you guys to do this because I didn't want to do that, then you had to follow suit. And it's interesting because people who think they can't affect, let's say, a family culture, a corporate culture, a social culture among their friends, if you dig in and you have these crazy harsh boundaries, you can enforce them on other people because they're your boundaries. You're not enforcing other people's behavior. You will then find that the culture among other people will change. And I've, I've done similar principle in my circle of friends. There was a time when I married my wife. She's just super positive, nice, friendly all the time. And one of the reasons I really love her. And married her. <laughs> and married her. And it's kind of funny because I'm not like that, right? I'm, I'm really not. I mean, I just made a joke earlier about, I've already decided to be upset about this. Like, it's funny because it's true, right? I, that's how I am a lot of the time. And I have to snap myself out of it. When we had a bunch of friends, we would gather up. And I was like, wow, all your friends are really nice and really cool and really positive. And she's like, yeah, I guess. Aren't yours? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And then we'd go out with my <laughs> friends back in the day not all of them, of course. And she'd be like, oh, that guy he just kind of complains about everything. And I'd be like, oh, I guess I never noticed. And then I'd go out with another group and she'd go, yeah, so those guys are cool, but I thought it was weird. They treated the waitress poorly. And I was like, yeah, I never really liked that. I never really thought about it. And then she's like, yeah. And then so we sort of cut, we limited our time with those people. And then it was like, I snapped to attention three years later and I realized, oh, isn't it weird? All of our friends are really nice, really cool, really generous, really positive. And it was a quote unquote accident. But what it was, was, oh yeah, we don't like jerks and we're not going to hang out with them anymore. Because since I have twice as many friends, because I've got her friends and my friends, it was like, well, who do we want to hang out with? And it just turned out that the ones who weren't complaining or mistreating people were the best ones. And that was, it's not that I got rid of my friends or anything. I just limited some of the people that I tolerated because they lived near me or whatever. Yeah. And I moved and ended up having to reset in that type of boundary is really important. And even now, Jen will get an email from somebody and she'll go, you know, this person's just not cool. Like they lie about stuff or they're just negative or they're disorganized. And then she'll just sort of, since she runs my life as my assistant as well, she'll just be like, 
I don't want to spend time with them. If you want to go out with them, you're welcome to, but I don't want to join you. And I'd go, well, if you're not going to join, it's not going to be a fun couple's night out. So let's just not do it. And I actually ended up being such a happier person because she essentially was like, hey, you can hang out with them if you want, but I'm not gonna, which meant less time with those people, which meant less time around negative or in other words, not so positive people. And I didn't even notice the change was happening, but it came from her boundary infecting my personal culture, which then (laughs) permeated the whole social circle. And there's a name for this and it's called network effects, not so surprisingly. And Adam, (laughs) I don't know if you've heard this, but there's data on this that I can look up if we need it. But essentially they did a study where if let's say you have a friend that's really, really fat and you're close with them, there's going to be a network effect that is measurable whereby you gain weight by virtue of being friends with them. I mean, of course, there's more to it. You hang out with them, you eat things that are less healthy, et cetera. But what's really interesting is it's not just you. There are people two and three degrees separated from your friend that have never met your friend who are also going to have network effects that are negative as a result of your friend smoking or obesity. And this is science that they are working on as we speak. And there is science that proves network effects are a real thing. So let me just repeat that conclusion here. You might have a morbidly obese friend or a bunch of them. You will gain weight. No surprise there. That happens. But then I will also gain weight, even though I don't know any of those people because I know you. Isn't that insane? Dude, yeah, absolutely. And it's obvious as well, if you think about it, just from what you're saying, the fact of you start making bad decisions because of the person around you, and then it bleeds off on everyone else. And this is why I love the community you've created because they're all trying to think, what do I not know that I need to know? What can I be doing better? How can I simplify things? How can I build a business that serves other people? And how can I be more positive? And these kind of like these tenets, these things that we follow, shift your life and the life of others around you. Exactly. Yes, this is it really is just going, hey, you know, that person that you hang out with that you've known forever, that's really awful and toxic and complains about their wife, they're going to infect you. In fact, I interviewed a guy on the Jordan Harbinger show, his name is Benjamin Hardy. And his book is called Willpower Doesn't Work, Discover the Hidden Keys to Success. And so what I really liked about this book was he mentioned a lot of specific examples. And he really is an expert on willpower and why it really does not work and how you can hack it. But one of the examples from that book was there's a guy who hung out with I think his college roommate or his old roommate. And that roommate, he played video games all the time. And he was kind of like, in a negative relationship, like him and him didn't get along or his girlfriend and him didn't get along. And so this guy who was happily married, had a kid, he would go and hang out with that guy every Friday. And Benjamin said, Hey man, this, that guy's bad news. Like you shouldn't hang around him. He's negative. He's not going anywhere in life. I don't want to tell you how to run your life. And the guy's like, ah, it's cool. We just drink and play video games on Friday, Saturday. It's, it's not a big deal. And then Benjamin, a few months later, is hanging out with them, like having dinner or eating pizza, playing Xbox, whatever, on a one-off. And he noticed that his friend was like making fun of his own wife. And he's like, hey, what's going on? And it's like, oh, it's just the way that I joke with so-and-so, the guy that is in a failing relationship and playing Xbox, right? I just, oh, it's just how we joke around. And then like eight months later, this guy's like, oh, I'm having relationship problems, my wife and I. And then a year and a half later, they're divorced. And Benjamin's like, I predicted this because you're hanging out with somebody who doesn't respect their relationship. And then they're dragging you into this negativity and then you're making fun of your wife. So you're starting to see her in a negative light. And then that led to contempt. And then dot, 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 his wife was like, you're a loser who plays video games and is negative. And this isn't the guy I married and I have a kid now and I can't stand it. 
and they separated. Yeah. And it's so funny because what you surround yourself with is your normal. Yes. That's one of the things. It's like one of the reasons why I love working in my office so much. We made some big changes to make sure that we focused on company culture. And one of the big ones is we got the entire team medical, but like the best medical you can get, like the highest level. And the net result was pure happiness across the whole team and also a real appreciation for the job. And in return, we started seeing more productivity, everyone being happier, everyone wanting to take more charge. And it's that same thing. Anything you can do that can alter your environment around you to improve it is going to have that net effect on you. And of course, like you're saying, like on your friends based on this concept, which is amazing. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Not sure where else to go. Yeah, I love it. All right. So we're getting towards the end here. So let's do a thing, Jordan. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about what you do? Because one of the reasons I wanted to have you here is because you do so many great and epic things. Um, you know, Tell everyone about the Jordan Harbinger Show. Sure. So what I do on the Jordan Harbinger Show is interview high performers. And I know that that sounds pretty generic. And I'm fine with that for now, because what we try to do is we try to deconstruct what it is that they do that is so important. And That sounds like, oh, a lot of shows do that, but not in the same way. We dive into the untapped wisdom of this top performing tier of people. So it'll be like intelligence operatives, neuroscientists. I interviewed Reid Hoffman, who founded LinkedIn and is a VC, Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google. But I also have like Mike Tyson, Mark Manson, who a lot of people have heard of. Moby was on recently. So I interview these people and I get down to brass tacks, like what are their habits? What are the things that make them able to do what they do? And also every episode has worksheets, which means every episode has practical takeaways. And that's really important because there are a lot of podcasts where it's like, oh, I heard this really inspiring interview with this person who's on a TV show. Great. Who cares? You're motivated. But most high performers, guys like you and I, and I don't want to speak for you, but I'm going to speak for you. I don't need motivation. I don't get up and go, oh, another day. How am I going to get through it? I don't have that. Okay, I've got a bunch of stuff I want to attack. How do I attack it in an efficient way? How do I hack the process? How can I do this in a way that's optimized for happiness or lifestyle or financial gain, whatever it is? You get that from top performers, but only if you ask the right questions. And it's not that they're hiding it. It's that they are unconsciously competent of a lot of the things that they do. And the other reason is because... If you're going on media in your Moby, people don't want to hear how you got over crippling anxiety in social settings because they just want to hear like, wasn't it awesome when you got your MTV award? Because interviewers don't care. The audience half the time is listening while they're like on the treadmill. This stuff on the Jordan Harbinger show is for people who are like, look, I don't need inspiration. I don't need to be motivated all the time. I want to find out what smart top minds are doing that is different from other people that is yielding a different result. And that is real knowledge that you can get from people that they very rarely have a chance to teach the rest of us. And that's why the show is different. And that's why it's important. And and that's why it's popular. I absolutely love this. And, you know, and I know that comes from like from our background, both of us, the desire to actually give real results and actually help. So anyone that hasn't listened to it, you got to go and check out the Jordan Harbinger show. It truly is an incredible podcast. I mean, you've been in the top 100 for a while now, right? Yeah. I mean, the Jordan Harbinger show has been in the top 100 or top 200 of all of iTunes in North America, US and Canada for since it started. And before that, I had a show for 11 years and that that got ridiculously popular as well. So the Jordan Harbinger, yeah, it's been top 200 literally the entire time since I started it. That's absolutely incredible, man. I love that. 
And hey, dude, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on here and, and spending your time with us. Everybody listening, make sure you go and check out The Jordan Harbinger Show. And Jordan, once again, thanks ever so much for coming by. Now, if you're new to the podcast and you want to learn more about how to build a smart business, then the absolute best place to start is with my Smart Blueprint ebook. Over 10,000 people have already gone through the book, and it's one of the most comprehensive resources on strategically building and growing your business that you can find anywhere for free. Just visit thesmartblueprint.com forward slash ebook to grab a free copy. And I'll see you on the next episode of Smart Businesses Do This.